The mic is hot and the game is on. You're listening to News for the Nation podcast by Aces Nation, where we talk about nutrition, sports performance, the journey of a student athlete, and more. I'm Claire. I'm Zach. Time Time to to level level up. Welcome back, sports fans. We are talking about intermittent power sports today, and we're going to define that really quickly for you. Um, The sports that we're going to be talking about in general, all field sports, Sports like soccer, field hockey, lacrosse, and rugby. Uh, let's not waste any time. Let's get right into it. Yeah. You know? Um, so just kind of start giving my notes and suggestions, guidelines, considerations, things like that for these intermittent power sports uh, from a strength conditioning standpoint. Um, first, I think as a professional or just maybe as an athlete or as a spectator, you should note what the needs are of that sport, right? Take notice of the entire thing in general. How does it work? Like what is important for that sport? Like what do they need? What do those athletes need to be successful or to play at a high level within the rules of the game, within the field dimensions as well? So first thing, intermittent power sports, wow, you're going to need anaerobic capacity, 100%. It's kind of like the name of the game here, uh, what what we're doing. But that being said, you're also going to need some type of aerobic base um, so you can recover quickly mm-hmm. between these bouts of uh, high speed, which is, yeah, name of the game again. Um, also, high strength level, that's going to come with things that you're doing. It also plays into the force that you produce overall, right, and can play into how your muscles contract. Uh, power, meaning rate of force development. So now not only how much force are you producing via strength, how quickly are you producing that force now, right? So mm-hmm. we want uh, everything to happen quickly. Right. Uh, And the last one, hypertrophy. This would probably be more appropriate. It's appropriate for everyone, but more so it's important for contact sports, Um, men's lacrosse in general. Rugby. uh, Rugby. Yeah. So any of these contact sports where um, you're going to need a little more mass to not get moved or to move someone else. Right. Yeah. Uh, So going off of that, going into training considerations for all those things that we talked about. Uh, just bring up the highlights of everything that I think when I am considering needs for the sport and how we would train those things. Uh, energy system it, development has to be appropriate for the sport. So you want to work in a time frame that's relevant for them. Like I would suggest, I'm going to talk about this later in testing again, but I wouldn't suggest doing a 5K for soccer or having your kids run three miles or miles continuously, even though coaches do it all over the place. I know other sports that are in a less um, aerobic arena than these sports are in general. They, they do stuff like this all the time, but I wouldn't mm-hmm. suggest doing that for your athletes. I mean, I talked last week about the three level test, right? That was yeah for endurance athletes. That yep. was an interval for endurance athlete, right? So mm-hmm. obviously I'm advocating for a test that is or or a conditioning plan program Mm -hmm. that's not so long and doesn't add wear and tear to what you're already doing right Right. so i i don't think it's appropriate to do these long runs for these intermittent power sports so Mm -hmm. i think to really consider the time frames that you're working in and how to take advantage of that um look into research that's out there for those tests but i i myself have also Looked for research, couldn't find it, and talked with coaches, talked with uh, like sports coaches, talked with 
uh, my supervisor, uh, like strength conditioning professionals of how to develop something that might be a little more appropriate for that sports energy system. Mm -hmm. So being creative is not a bad thing as long as you're staying within the scientific principles of what you're doing. Okay. Yeah. Well, you see a lot of those, not even just testing, but a lot of that like aerobic stuff for like punishment. Too, oh yeah. Oh in yeah. In those sports. Like who, okay. Like I don't, again, I don't understand that either. This is, this is kind of jumping going on. on a tangent. This is kind of jumping on, <laughs> on a tangent here, but I don't, I don't agree with that either. Mm -mm. You know, I always think if I was a head coach, I'd probably get fired really quickly because I know that the athlete, what they really want to do is play competitive minutes. Mm -hmm. So if there was some type of quote unquote, I'm not even going to call it what, what you said. If there was some type of accountability measure mm -hmm. happening, my go-to would always be, okay, you're not playing. And I would be, right. and I would just continue to coach my butt off, right? Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't care if we lost the game because I did everything I could and you didn't do your job, but I did my job. Yeah. Right. So I, I agree. I, I agree. I just always don't get that. Like, hey, I'm going to, you didn't do something that was like within the team rules and stuff, which th there should be some accountability right. within that, right? But like, hey, I'm going to go right. make you do stuff that's going to like, uh, some physical thing that's going to make your performance potentially worse. Right. Or like you did bad in this drill or you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing in practice. So just go run an, a couple laps or go run a mile. This yeah. is not going to help. <laughs> it's yeah. probably going to make it worse. Yeah, absolutely. Like that doesn't take, I don't know, that doesn't necessarily reinforce what I think coaches always want to reinforce. Right. right. So yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, anyway, that just popped into my mind when, when you mentioned that. So. That was good. That was good. Uh, so next kind of, of, Training consideration here, uh, lower body strength emphasis. I talked about this with uh, the amount of force that you can produce, but strength is highly important for a lot of these uh, crucial movements in sport, whether that be um, slowing down, uh, speeding up, you know, jumping, if there's any type of movement like that. But also strength is important, putting force into the ground for if you're throwing an implement or throwing mm -hmm. a ball um, via a stick or with your own hands. Yeah. So that's important there. Um, rate of force development, we talked about being important. You want to be able to produce force quickly. Uh, we're talking about, you know, get your foot into the ground, make create force quickly, or you're slowing down. You want to be able to go into that eccentric movement as fast as possible and safely as possible with a good range of motion there as well. Mm -hmm. Not being outside your center of gravity. That's a, that's a high point as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but things that you could do for training that, um, you could do Olympic weightlifting derivatives, I would say is really appropriate for the age group um, within uh, middle school to um, high school. Plyometrics, always a great go-to. I mean, even more so, I think, than Olympic weightlifting derivatives at the young age, like get people mm -hmm. to produce force like against gravity um, at a high rate. Maybe clarify what you mean by Olympic lifting derivatives. Okay. So personally, from experience at the collegiate level, mm -hmm. I wouldn't do a full clean, like a catch on mm -hmm. clean. Like the turnover part. Right, right. Because there's so much variance in how people do it. And if you're teaching a, a kid like very early on, there's also going to be a big learning curve. Like if you're going to have this person for eight years or so, you, you'd be, you're probably okay to like start training them with the very simple like PVC pipe, dowel rod type of movements and whatever. Um, but if, if you only have them for a certain period of time, I wouldn't do it. Like when kids come in, uh, in the collegiate realm, we got a transfer that comes in. He's going to be with me for two years. He's never done cleaning in his life. Like, mm -hmm. why am I going to waste my time on that? Right. You know, I'm going to see this kid for 
you know, a certain amount of weeks before they like go heavy into competition or something. And then like, mm -hmm. they're going to be on several holiday breaks and then he's going to go away for the summertime and who knows if he comes back to the school or not, right. you know? So I, I just think it's not necessarily great. So for like clean, I would stick with a pool, right? Mm -hmm. But however, let me say that good, pre good preface here for any of these Olympic weightlifting movements, you have to be able to do certain things first. Like you have to be able to deadlift first. So to teach that is important. That puts another emphasis on strength mm -hmm. if you're trying to get there. But also that's just a, a high level of force that you have to develop to move a bar that's not moving. Uh, mm -hmm. I talked in an earlier, like a podcast, a couple of podcasts ago mm -hmm. about Newton's, you know, three laws and how right. that plays into deadlift. So that's one of your main things. You have to establish good movements in strength before you start doing Olympic weightlifting movements, mm -hmm. right? Like right. you have to have mobility, you have to have the requisite strength to do those things. So um, if you're going to do them, you better have had the foundation first. Right, right. Uh, but again, I would do like a high pull or something like that. Mm -hmm. My opinion, the snatch is a little easier to teach. So you could probably get away with trying to teach it through a dowel rod. And then mm -hmm. as they build up strength, you can probably start to teach it with an empty barbell. Like lightweight, yeah. Yeah, or, or a training barbell that's a little bit mm -hmm. lighter. Mm -hmm. However, that also takes time out of your training day to teach those things. Right. So you really have to make sure that's a staple of your program before you start saying, I'm going to teach this because I want my kids to do snatch and, you know, that's going to look good right. to there, like parents and yeah. other teams. And when I put it on social media. Yeah. Is there so, something else you could do that has the same right. stimulus that's going to get you the same results, maybe even quicker with less effort? Right. I mean, that's for the middle school, high school age group. Like I think working on strength mm -hmm. and developing a reduction in ground contact time on plyometrics is, is where it's at, okay. I think. Uh, I think you should stick with those. But yeah. however, I'm just listing out considerations. So there's yeah. a good question, Claire. Thanks for clarifying. You bet. <laughs> so after um, any of those Olympic weightlifting derivatives or plyometric considerations, also you should you should work, uh, work on sprinting as well. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to turn over uh, pretty quickly, um, whether that's at uh, acceleration or full speed. Talking about sprinting, you're going to need to work on speed, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. in the considerations of both those sports, you're going to need to work somewhere between five yard speed, right? And acceleration to 60 yard top end speed, right? Right. I mean, it's huge range, but yeah. I mean, these sports that we're talking about cover large ranges of field yeah. at a time. So it's important to have top end speed and uh, great pure acceleration as well. Uh, eccentric rate of force development. It's really crucial when reacting uh, to a player, to the ball, uh, making a move on the field that's not determined by you, uh, it, it's great for rapid change of direction. So to be able to slow yourself down and be in a position where you can make multiple movements takes a lot of strength, right? right. And, and it takes the ability to create force quickly to be able to propel yourself in a different direction after you've made that decision. So eccentric force development is important as well. Um, talked about rapid change direction, but when the next thing, mm -hmm. change of direction and agility. So what I mean by the two of them here, change of direction being planned, agility being unplanned or you're reacting to something. Mm -hmm. So it's important to have change of direction, uh, foundations first. You need to be able to put yourself in a position to react in whatever direction you want to, or you may need to on the field. Right. So you have to have good mechanics for that. 
Are you slowing down efficiently? Is your center of gravity in the right spot? Are you, um, is your weight on the, on your foot? Is that in a good placement for you to be able to make a move somewhere? Right. Um, you know, what is your base with your feet? You know, you want to, in essence, when you have to make a decision quickly and you're reacting, you want to be able to be in a good spot where I don't have to take any more steps would be optimal. Mm-hmm. But if I can take the fewest amount of steps to give myself the chance to catch up with or beat that person, that's what you want. Right. Um, I, I'll say this about about one thing. A lot of people kind of get caught up on, um, you know, when you're you're in a bilateral stance or you're in an athletic yeah. position. Mm-hmm. I'll say, wow, for the viewers, athletic you get stance. to see, yeah, for <laughs> the viewers uh, on YouTube, you get to actually see my my hands while I'm demonstrating <laughs> this as a feat. So. You know, when you're in that stance and some people uh, call it a false step mm-hmm. where you step back. Yeah. Some research suggests that's called a plyo step mm. where you're actually building kinetic energy yeah. by taking that step and allowing to yourself to forward. burst out. So I, I, I can't remember the research paper that was out there. Um, so go look that up. But there is good evidence that a plyo step is not as bad as people make a false step seem. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's always something to think. And also, it's you can teach people to do certain things, right? Like you be, get these learned behaviors and patterns. But if that person's already fast in that plyo step, now you're trying to have them think more and adjust more to take your not false step. So in essence... You could be making them slower right. because they're having to think more. Yeah. You want to think of just yeah, muscle you wanna, memory and going. Yeah. You want to think less when you're having yeah. to react, right? Interesting. Yeah. So there's that free information. <laughs> uh, next on training considerations, proper dynamic warm up, right? Mm-hmm. This is huge. Talk about this a lot. I know. I know. I do. I'm a big talk about warm up guy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just important that you're you're making everything dynamic for these sports because they they take so much action. You need to be going through proper ranges of motion. You need to be increasing in the intensity uh, towards the end as you go. So getting into those moderates and high intensities as you're at the end of the warm-up because that's preparing you to be at top speed. That's preparing you to have rapid um, eccentric rate of force development. Mm-hmm. You need to prime the system to use it the way that you want to out on the field. So I think it's really important that you put the proper exercises in the appropriate order in your warm-up to start and that's warm-up for game day or that's warm-up for training session or that's warm-up for a workout like Mm -hmm. everything should be appropriate dynamic sequential progressive all of that right um moving down the list here your practice intensities should match the game demands now there is research out there about this too Sorry for everyone. I, there was a ton of research that I pulled up on this, and I don't think that we would get through the podcast very quickly if I was just rambling off like <laughs> what the titles are and reading almost every abstract here. Yeah. So I was very selective in that. But there is research out there that your practice intensities should match your game intensities or your game demands, right? And how that, that can uh, show positive correlations for the longevity of that athlete's health, mm-hmm. right? Um, so... You need to make sure that if you've got really tough games or if you've got games that are going to require athletes to perform at a high level for a certain distance or a certain amount of time, you need to be able to progressively and uh, appropriately 
plan that into right. your practices and build them up to that point, right? Where almost your practice should be harder than the game, mm -hmm. right? So their, their bodies are ready to take on the demands that they might have in a competitive setting. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's pretty true to say players want to play in games. Mm -hmm. So they're probably more competitive and probably moving at higher velocities in the games mm -hmm. than they would in practice. But you need them to run at the same intensities in practice right? Um, and kind of push that so they're able to handle whatever happens in the game. Mm -hmm. All right, next, talked about, uh, talked about research. This one, I'm going to bring a couple of articles in. Um, so talking about single sessions of workouts during a week in season. Okay, particularly these two research articles are about soccer, one of the sports that we're covering today and the energy systems that we're covering. Mm -hmm. Is it busy schedules, right? Um, yeah. I know there's a, lot, there's a lot of pushback from from soccer on a lot of stuff, right? Just in my experience in American soccer teams. Okay. Of training during the season, right? Doing anything other than soccer and like, Foam rolling and stretching. Interesting. <laughs> right. There's a lot of pushback on, especially like lifting, which is crazy yeah. because EPL teams are are lifting during season. Yeah. And I didn't have that experience when I worked with soccer. That's great. That's great. Women's soccer, a lot better than men's soccer. It was just women's. Yeah. Yeah. So men's soccer is typically giving you the most pushback Interesting. for some reason. Women's soccer, for the most part, they're gung-ho about, you know, about staying lifting. healthy, yeah. being strong, you know, mm. makes sense, right? Anyways, so talking about single session uh, workouts, you mm -hmm. know, to promote any type of fitness improvements uh, throughout the competitive season. So does it work? Does it not work? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? So <laughs> it depends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. So actually, I I'm only going to go over the abstracts here just because I want to save time and not like bore everyone with me reading a bunch of research while you're listening to a podcast. <laughs> so I'm going to bring a couple of things into play here. Okay. First article I'm going to read was published in 2019. Okay. Second article that I'm going to read is published in 2020. Year apart. All right. 2019 title is a single session of straight line and change of direction sprinting per week does not lead to different fitness improvements in elite young soccer players. Okay does not lead to different fitness improvements does not okay so the really quick abstract here um what's the population 20 elite young soccer players goalkeepers not included in this they were excluded okay uh what's the time frame that we got here eight week period okay, they went through an eight week period they were selectively randomly selected to go down this right so if you got selected to be in control boom you were in control mm -hmm. if you got selected to be sprint training sh uh, straight ahead sprint you were over there if you got picked for the change of direction you were over there okay mm -hmm. so 10 players on both of them both of the um straight sprint and then 10 players on the change of direction okay, okay. the straight sprint was three sets of seven um of 30 meter sprints with 20 seconds so 20 seconds to run 30 meters right okay and then uh, four-minute recovery between the sprints and between the sets. Okay. Okay. Um, and then the change of direction was also three sets of seven, but it was 20 meters down, 20 meters back. Mm -hmm. Same time frames, 20-second uh, um, sprints, and then 40-minute uh, 
recovery between sprints and the sets. Okay. 40 or four? Sorry, sorry. I read something else there. Um, four okay. minute recovery. Just clarifying. Yeah, yeah. That's good. That's a good, very good <laughs> clarification there. Four minute recovery between sets and uh, sprints. Uh, physical test that they looked at, long jump, repeat sprint ability, best repeat sprint ability mean, the 505 agility test, yo-yo recovery level one, 10, 30, and 40 meter sprints. Okay, Those are what they looked at. Uh, basically, unclear variations in long jump, uh, sprint 30 meters, sprint 40 meters, uh, RSA best, RSA mean, um, and then the change of direction showed unclear and trivial variations in sprint 10 meter uh, sprint and uh, mm. 30 meter sprint, 40 meter sprint, RSA, RSA, uh, best and mean, uh, in conclusion, a single session of straight ahead sprints or change of direction does not improve soccer specific fitness indicators in elite youth uh, players during the season. Uh, if anybody's wondering about the schedule, they did go Monday through Friday with training. They played a match on Saturday, Sunday, they were off. Okay. They usually did their, um, straight ahead or change of direction sprint training on the Wednesday after they played and did technical work. Okay. There is a note I want to make about the results here. Uh, the data analyzed found an improvement in sprint, uh, a 10 meter sprint that was possible, but not significant. The 505 change of direction test, very likely, um, but not really significant. The yo-yo recovery level one is likely. Um, long jump was possible, but not likely. So, I mean, there are some things that were, uh, it was unclear. They did right. show some improvements, but not enough for it to be significant. Right. Right. And it was also eight weeks. So if there was a change, maybe if they had more time, maybe it could have become significant. Right. Right. Well, very, very good that you said that, Claire. That was my thought. Exactly. Okay. Going to the next, uh, the next research article here title of it, the effect of a single session of plyometric training per week on fitness parameters in professional female soccer players, a randomized control trial. Okay. So first thing off here that we have, first one was elite you, elite young soccer players, mm -hmm. males. Mm -hmm. Now we've got professional female soccer players, mm -hmm. different population. Okay. Right. Obviously. Um, you talked about the eight weeks, this next one that we're talking about right here, 12 week program. Okay. Oh, so a little longer. Oh, yeah. 16 <laughs> players. Okay. Uh, eight were doing a plyometric protocol and eight were in a control group. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, things that they tested squat jump, counter movement jump, long jump, single leg, triple jump on dominant and non dominant side, the 505 agility test that the other Same. one did, um, a 10 meter and a 30 meter sprint. Okay. They were performed before and after the 12 weeks of plyometric training. Significant differences were found in the triple jump dominant and non-dominant and improvements in the 10 meter sprint. So hmm. the other one, unclear, right? unclear improvements in the 10 meter sprint. This one, significant improvement, right? Hmm. So different on the, uh, however, neither group reported significant variation and squat jump, counter movement jump, long jump, 505, uh, change of direction, or the 30 meter sprint, right? Uh, these have strong practical applications that showed for the first time in a single session, a week of plyometric, a uh, single session a week of plyometric training can significantly increase 
some parameters within right. the uh, season, right? Yeah. Hmm. So just really quickly on those comparison, right? Obviously, the first one showed no significant changes or improvements, and it was only eight weeks. Second one was 12 weeks, and they showed improvement, right? right. Especially, uh, specifically, I want to say in the 10-meter sprint, mm -hmm. right? Because that was one where it was unclear in the first, but significant in the second. So I wonder if, like you said, if that training had gone on for a little longer, would they start to see more of those positive correlations that became not just possible mm -hmm. or likely, but became really like uh, showing uh, significance right. in the data. So right. um, it, it's out there where you can make improvements during the season. Um, being consistent, obviously the 12 week being consistent for a long period of time mm -hmm. definitely shows uh, more of an improvement. So I think that still working on speed in season is important. I think working on your ability to change direction Mm -hmm. um, or some type of uh, fitness, maybe, even if that's in a change of direction fashion, quote unquote, where you're sprinting down and sprinting back. Those qualities like speed have a tendency to diminish quickly. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to still train them, right? Right, right? So obviously there's evidence that in season training, even once a week can be beneficial. Uh, it's just selecting the most appropriate and there's still further research, I think, or I think we both agree that needs to be done with uh, the sprinting one. If mm -hmm. they did it longer, would it improve? So right. further research would be required there. However, mm -hmm. all, all in summary, you should continue to train in season, whether that's speed, whether that's plyometrics, whether that's your ability to change directions. Mm -hmm. Those things are fundamental to the game or to the uh, your ability to play the game at a high level. Right. Um, you should still continue to work on those things. Yeah. Uh, closing up with the last three here on my training considerations. Isometrics play a big role in a lot of strength parameters and a lot of fitness parameters that happen. So um, working on certain isometrics, like there's an article that I read leading up to it about the uh, mid-thigh pull, isometric mid-thigh pull, mm -hmm. if anyone knows out there what that is. Um, <laughs> but just that it has improvements in like force production, right? Which is huge. Right. I mean, your force produ production capabilities play into your sprinting ability. So if you have the ability to produce force for a certain time at specific knee angles, which is what they're doing um, in this mid-thigh pool, those knee angles are going to be more related to uh, top end speed. So you want to have those types of capabilities at those knee angles. So isometrics are great to use during yeah. the season, right? They can also help with um, tendonitis. Mm. of like a jumper's knee yeah. in basketball. But I know we're not talking about that, but carries over, right? Cool. Uh, sled pulls. There's an article that I read mm. about heavy sled pulls for uh, female Australian rules football or mm -hmm. Aussie football, um, that that showed improvements in their sprint ability at 10 and mm -hmm. I think 30 meters. So sled pulls would be great. If you've got that capability, whether it's yeah. sled or whether it's like chain pulls, if you've got yeah. the type of belt to hold it up. So some type of weighted, uh, resisted running. I should, yeah. I should say resisted Could you running. Could like banded with a person behind you? Um, you know, research didn't say that, but <laughs> I'm, I'm sure like there are some, it probably has to do with the resistance mm -hmm. and the angle of which you're applying force to the ground and right. accelerating, right? right? So I think there's 
there's merit to that. I just can't say that it's it's out there in research, Fair. right? Um, and then the last one, you should do multi-directional movements because your sports happen in 3D. They don't happen, you know, forward and backward the whole time. They don't happen side to side the whole mm -hmm. time. And when you kick the ball, when you throw the ball with a stick or when you go to pass the ball in rugby, that's a 3D movement, right? And your body right. is moving in, in all these different planes. So you need to be able to move multi-directional through strength, through plyometrics, through running, all of those things. So those are my training considerations. Uh, last thing I want to cover is just testing because we talked about a little bit of research and we talked about training. I think it's important to test uh, or if you want to call it assessing, you need to do an initial assessment and you need to assess somewhere else down the line. And we talked about endurance athletes there. I, I gave the three level test that you could do during your training, right? It may not always be the case for intermittent sports where you can just do these fitness assessments all the time, right? You may yeah. be able to monitor in different ways, but assessments probably is a little bit uh, more challenging. However, you could do certain assessments like uh, counter movement jumps, vertical jumps, mm -hmm. or uh, broad jumps just to get force characteristics or their, their capabilities. And you could monitor those things. You could assess uh, sprints, excuse me. You could do a 10 meter sprint, 10 yard sprint. Um, you could time those reg regularly you know, mm -hmm. weekly, if you wanted to, yeah. as a part of your speed training sessions, you know, um, when you get to the middle of it, or after a really great dynamic warm up, you could assess those as a monitoring system of a we're getting we're getting slower overall, you know, they need to be done, not hand timed. Mm -hmm. And they should be done consistently and be done the same way every single time if you want those uh, answers or those results to be mm -hmm. uh, valid, reliable. So you could do those, right? I, I just mentioned that the fitness assessments, you should do those preseason, definitely. I think leading up to it. Um, you could do the yo-yo, beep. Um, rugby, there's something called the Wales anaerobic test that I was introduced to yesterday via <laughs> research article, which is awesome because it's a rugby specific type of yo-yo test. Mm -hmm. uh, it's great for them. Um, I know soccer has moved into sometimes doing the 30-15 uh, intermittent fitness test, which I think is great. I like that one probably a little bit more than the beep or the yo-yo. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, who knows, you might be able to do that three-level test that I talked about. Yeah. You, you may not need to do it for a whole minute, but you could still uh, take that assessment later on. Uh, I don't think you should do the one mile. I don't think you should run three miles or a 5K. And I'm not really sold on the man you. Um, I don't think that's not even like a yo-yo test. And sometimes I think that it got booked together, but I don't know, like, did, did some of my soccer teams do that? Yeah, they did at Florida Southern, but, uh, I'm not, I'm not sold on it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I think for a strength testing purpose, you could also just, just another additive here. Um, you could test strength as well, mostly lower body. I, I think it's, not necessarily appropriate to test upper body unless you're in a contact sport mm -hmm. um, where you're actually trying to move people with your upper body, right? Uh, like rugby would be. Yeah. Uh, lower body is probably the most important thing, uh, really putting the importance on the concentric and eccentric strength. So there are those things to look at there. Um, I think that's, I think that's all my points. Okay, <laughs> cool. Well, that was a lot of information, a lot of training considerations to take into account yeah, for, it, for these 
sports. Yeah, I think it's it's a pretty it's a simple it's a simple thing to do, but mm-hmm. I there are a lot of things to consider. Yeah. Uh, there are more things to consider than I talked about too. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure uh, there are. Yeah, there really are. So just to be those were the things I needed to touch on, high importance uh, in my opinion. So yeah, th- there's all the training considerations, but mm-hmm. you know, I, we want to hear all about the nutritional side as well because any of that recovery stuff is important for us to to know like how do we fuel our body for these uh sports in particular it's mm-hmm. different than what we talked about last week so yeah it is it is very it, i wouldn't say it's very different but it is different um it's not different in the sense of like the energy needs are still pretty high mm-hmm. um with these sports um particularly because you like you mentioned before you're you're kind of moving through utilizing aerobic and anaerobic those two energy systems as your like primary energy systems at different points throughout a game or throughout a practice, depending on what you're doing. Um, However, as similar to endurance sports, as the intensity increases, we're mainly relying on that aerobic system. So again, when we think about from a nutrition perspective, what that means, that means we're mainly relying on our glycogen stores, AKA carbs. Um, So, you know, typically in, in those, maybe let's say like a really high intensity practice or in a game, we're really going to be relying on carbohydrates as our um, main source of energy. Um, You know, they can benefit our nervous system, your energy levels, increase your performance. So all of those things that are obviously very important as an athlete um, and particularly during a game. So similar to maybe what we said last time or, or last week when we talked about endurance sports, um, that being a little different of because we're going for a prolonged period of time, maybe in more of like a half marathon, marathon sense where we're depleting those glycogen stores over time. Um, so we need to replenish those as we go. Same thing with these types of sports, but because they're going at such a high intensity, even if it's not for such as such a long period of time, we still need to at some point replenish those stores and replenish um, those carbohydrates. So half time is a good time to work on those things. And I, we worked a lot on that in collegiate sports um, because sometimes, I mean, when you think about it, um, maybe they're not hungry, maybe they're nervous, maybe they're tired, you know, whatever it might be. It's just like, oh, no, I'm not hungry. Um, but hunger is not the best, you know, indicator of, of when we need to eat and what we need. So that was a big thing that, you know, we worked on then. And that's a really huge window of opportunity to be able to, you know, maybe get an edge over your competition or just really put yourself in a, in a better spot to be able to perform at a, at a Mm -hmm. higher level and be able to execute some of these things like making really fast decisions about change of direction or, or Mm -hmm. where they need to go and things like that. Um, so because carbohydrates are, so important. Um, general recommendations for those are about seven grams per kilogram per day for the intermittent power athlete. Um, obviously those can vary because everything depends, you know, it depends on maybe what their position is, how long they've been in the game, what their practice looked like. Do they have another, maybe they're in a tournament, do they have another game the next day? So it just kind of depends. So we can vary somewhere between like seven to 12 grams per kilogram per day. Yeah, that's a good point you made because a lot of the research that I, I've seen about soccer in, in general is that midfielders cover more distance mm-hmm. than any other position on the soccer field. So they would be more towards that 12 grams per kilogram. 
probably maybe 10 to 12. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Somewhere around there. So similar to, again, similar to what we talked about last week with endurance athletes, it's going to vary somewhere between five to seven to 10 to 12, depending right. on the intensity and the amount of time that they're, you know, in this, um, in this energy system. Protein needs, so the protein needs of an intermittent power athlete is going to be higher than an endurance athlete. So mm -hmm. general recommendations are 1.4 to 1.7 grams per kilogram. But again, it could be higher depending on the season. Maybe preseason it needs to be a little bit higher just because of the intensity of the, the workouts. We need a little bit more for recovery. Off-season it might be higher too because maybe we're really focusing on hypertrophy and building strength versus um, in-season where, you know, we're, we're focusing more on um, – some of those sports specific things and training. Um, but again, just depends on the time of the season, but that's the general kind of recommendation. Um, one of the probably most important nutrition consideration is hydration. Um, particularly again, because when you, when you look at sports like soccer or rugby or lacrosse, you know, you're, you could be on the field the entire game depending oh, yeah. on who you are so i mean hydration is important in endurance and these but then when you look at and well we haven't touched on power sports yet but we when you look at that we're getting more like kind of bursts of things we have more opportunity to hydrate and refuel right, right. um so hydration is really important and then when you look at sports where you're adding additional gear Again, when you're running, you have your tank top and your shorts and your shoes, and that's about it if right. it's hot. But if you play lacrosse, you can't not wear your pads and your helmet. Yeah. Like you, That's your gear. That's your uniform. Same thing with – I know we didn't mention ice hockey, um, but I kind of have some stuff in there. They can be considered an intermittent power sport slash power sport kind of depending on, on what's going on. Um, but again, a lot of – gear oh, right yeah. and so that's going to alter their sweat rate that's going to alter the amount of and and the hydration strategies that they need to be implementing during their game or right. their practices um so just some general uh considerations work on really maximizing your water and your hydration intake throughout the day that may seem very obvious but a lot of the times it's not happening um, because maybe we don't have a water bottle with us. We don't carry a reusable water bottle. Maybe we just forget. Um, so maybe setting an alarm or setting reminders or whatever as an athlete could be really helpful. Even if you're in class, you know, maybe every 20 minutes, like we have a vibrating alarm that goes off that, hey, you need to drink like 20 ounces of water or whatever it might be. One of my high school coaches had a, a uh, good suggestion and, and maybe a little bit of a, a rule of thumb for us. Anytime you pass a water fountain, you should take a drink. Yeah, I think that's a great rule of thumb. Yeah. <laughs> um, because a lot of the times hydration is is something that goes um, under the radar. Um, consuming fluids regularly throughout practice. I'm, I was guilty of this as an athlete. Anytime I drank anything as a swimmer or a runner, I immediately got a cramp, like a side stitch cramp. So I didn't drink really at all during any practices. I would make sure that I was rehydrating after. Um, but if you can, and part of that is, I didn't know this then, but part of that is like training your gut. You have to train your mm -hmm. body to be able to tolerate that and withstand it. So maybe if it's just a little sip every 20 minutes or here and there, whenever you get a break, trying to train your body to be able to tolerate that. So throughout your practices and your games, you can make sure you're rehydrating so we're not getting to a point where our performance is suffering. Um, and then rehydrating after practices and games with water, 
electrolytes and carbohydrates. Um, from an electrolyte standpoint, specifically sodium and chloride, but specifically sodium because it helps to sustain your thirst drive. Um, you know, it makes sure that you're restoring your plasma volume um, and it helps retain ingested fluids. I couldn't find, I, I looked for this, but I remember in undergrad when I like first started my dietetics degree, um, we had talked about like hydration and I think it was probably in like a, um, a nutrition and sports class. But I remember this image of, um, I think it was a sodium ion and it had a water droplet like on a leash and it was pulling it. Um, and I think it was a good representation of where sodium is. There's water retention, right? right? That water stays where that sodium is. So I think that's a good, um, analogy for athletes to think of after of when you have that sodium and you're drinking that water, that's helpful to make sure that you're rehydrating what you just dehydrated. Um, and then carbohydrates, obviously, because we want to replenish our glycogen stores, we just used all that carbohydrate to make energy. Um, but also from a hydration perspective, that glycogen also stores water. So for every, I think it's for every gram of, um, Glycogen, we're storing like three grams or so of water, something nice. like that. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, but from a from a loss perspective, for each liter of sweat lost, uh, why we want to try and avoid going an entire practice or going an entire game without replenishing that is because your heart rate is going to increase um, by could be up to eight beats per minute for every liter of sweat loss. And your cardiac output is going to decrease. So both of those things are yeah. problematic. Yeah, for not athletes. good. Not we good. Don't, don't want those things. Um, so yeah, so those are the general recommendations. Um, I do have a couple examples and studies from some of these intermittent power sports of just to basically just look at like, what are they doing nutritionally? Um, do they match up to some of these recommendations? Do they not? And, and gave some practical, I think, applications of like what we as nutrition professionals can be doing better uh, and what these athletes can do a little bit better or kind of just the margin that they have to become better athletes because of what they're not doing nutritionally. Mm -hmm. So uh, one study here is with division two female lacrosse players. So they recorded their dietary intake for four consecutive days, five times throughout the entire year. So not just in season, but they did preseason in season and out of season. Um, they looked at their TDE, so their total daily energy expenditure and their activity energy energy expenditure, and it was found to change significantly over the course of the season, which that makes sense. Um, and in during preseason, it was the highest. Again, that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yep. So they found that their total daily energy expenditure was somewhere around 2,800 calories, and their activity energy expenditure, so what they were expending during their training, was about 1,000 calories. Um, but looking through their, uh, food logs, their caloric carbohydrate and protein intake did not change throughout the year. So it stayed the same throughout that preseason, in season and postseason. um, which again, makes sense for an athlete just kind of going about their day and time. And they're like, this is what I eat. This is what I feel hungry for without really kind of that, um, consideration of the time of the year, what they're doing. Right. Um, but they found that the average caloric intake was about 2,150 calories. Uh, carbohydrate intake was about 3.6 grams per kilogram. So you'll remember that the average recommendation was about seven, mm -hmm. what we just mentioned. Wow. 
And then protein intake was about 1.2 gram per kilogram. So again, it's not so much off from that 1.4 to 1.7, but it's still not where it needs to be. Well, it's not great if it didn't change where you mentioned right. at least a couple of times in our podcast is uh, podcast that your uh, diet or your nutritional needs, they should change as you go through different seasons, right? It mm -hmm. should be higher at some points in time, right? Yeah, so it should be higher. And, and maybe the composition of, of your macronutrients should change again, depending on your goals. Maybe in season and, and out of season might not look that much different. Again, if we're just trying to kind of maintain weight, muscle mass, body composition, all of those things, but particularly in season and everything else, or preseason and everything else should look yeah, different. different. It should yeah. look different. Um, but all of the, every single one of these athletes self-reported moderate negative energy balance and low energy availability, which <laughs> from looking at the data, yeah, that's yeah. pretty obvious. So the main, main, um, conclusion or the main point of, of talking about this and, and drawing this out is that they're not eating enough. Yeah. Not just for preseason, but just in general. So again, that's going to compound throughout the entire year. We're going to be more susceptible to injuries. Maybe we're not really even seeing any of the benefits from what we're doing in the weight room because mm -hmm. your body can't even, yeah. per, you know, uh, do all these processes it needs to do to just be in energy balance. So, wow. I thought that was interesting. Um, second study, uh, this is in ice hockey again. So I mentioned ice hockey before, but um, looking at major junior league, uh, American hockey league and national hockey league. Um, again, I mentioned hockey players wear a significant amount of gear. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty obvious. So yeah. again, it can be, can become problematic as sweat rate increases and hydration strategies are not changed. So there's been previous research that has reported in elite junior hockey players an average loss of 1.4 to 1.8 liter per hour of sweat, and in professional players, an average of 1.3 to 2.5, not 25, liters per hour of sweat during practices. So it's a decent amount. Um, basically, they did a bunch of testing um, pre uh, pre-practice hydration measures, post-practice, um, body weight changes and all of that. So at, at the end, throughout all of their measurements, they found that 15% of the junior, 41% of American Hockey League, and 48% of National Hockey League reached or were close to mild dehydration. So at that point, they're at an increased risk of performance decrements in a 90-minute practice. So essentially, they found that they were 2 to 3% dehydrated. Mm -hmm after practice, um, which again, puts them at an increased risk for a lot of, um, performance decrements again, like decision-making, um, muscle cramping. So all of these things that can be prevented right. from fueling strategies and hydration strategies, they were not doing. And 41 and 48% is a half the team, basically. Yeah, it's huge. Almost half the team. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, so anyway, again, something just to show the importance of that. And then the last one, um, was pretty straightforward, pretty short, but again, um, this one was in soccer looking at the average energy expenditure measured. It was about 27 to 2,800 calories a day in elite females and 35 to 3,600 calories in elite males. Um, they found that the average soccer player was at about 75 to 80% of that in their actual intake. Um, so again, if we looked at like the lacrosse players and soccer players, similar maybe type of sport when you look at it simplistically, right. um, their energy needs are going to be about the same. But if we look at the average, we're typically 
typically about 700, maybe 600 calories under what we need to be eating, which is a, a lot. That's like one whole meal. Wow. Um, and then they also found that most players do not drink su sufficiently during matches to optimize hydration, replacing only 40 to 45% of sweat losses. Wow. That's a staggering that amount. That is a staggering amount. Um, Especially when you talked about um, several times throughout the time I've known you about how dehydration really just impairs your performance. Yeah, just even a, like mild dehydration, like right. in this hockey, um, mild dehydration can affect a lot of things when you think, I mean, your body is primarily made up of water. Right. So if you're not replacing that and you're getting rid of a lot of it all at once, mm -hmm. there's going to be a lot of, a lot of problems. And, and if you're used to being mildly dehydrated, you might not even notice. So right. again, there's this kind of like gap of this is where I'm used to operating. But if we could just like maximize what you're doing with this one thing of just drinking more water and electrolytes, you could be, how much better could you be? Right. I don't know. It could be yeah. like 50%, maybe not that much, but. Well, well, seriously, but is that the percent you need? Is that the small percent change that you might need to help you be better than this person at a showcase or yeah. a tournament where you're getting uh, looked at by college coaches and you have an opportunity to perform at a high level, but you're not because you're not drinking enough water? You know, yeah, you're not hydrated. Could be. Yeah. I mean, when you think again, from a, just even from like a cognitive perspective, it could oh, yeah. be between the decision of cutting right or cutting left. And, and one in is a millisecond, could be the wrong right? decision. Yeah. yeah. You're a millisecond behind, right? Because you're dehydrated mm -hmm. and you couldn't make that change quick enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. So just some things to highlight it. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I probably harp on this a lot, but the nutrition piece is so important because of all of those excuse me, small little changes that can make a, make a big impact and really affect what they're doing in this case on the field and in the weight room. Right. Uh, I want you touched on different competitive seasons of the year and, uh, I, I failed to mention this earlier, but I wanted to, to touch back on, uh, preseason, the importance of preseason, mm -hmm. uh, training, um, uh, another article that I, came across as I was preparing for this podcast was the um, importance of preseason training as it related to soccer players. Um, and the study had a 12-week preseason, which is so... That's long. I know. It's so rare, but it wasn't like it wasn't like a collegiate setting mm, or anything like that's that. That's usually like three or four weeks. Yeah, it's weeks, right? So even to highlight that even further, the importance of things is... Um, their injury rate was significantly lower. Mm -hmm. I mean, I want to say it was like less than 10% and those weren't um, of high severity because of the emphasis they put on their, their preseason training, right? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to emphasize that for our listeners out there is that you may not have a 12-week preseason, but that probably falls into the off-season or if you're a, a collegiate player, that probably falls into your summertime maybe. Mm -hmm. um, the importance of preparing yourself as you're leading up to um, your preseason is just as important as that preseason time as well because mm -hmm. you have prepared your body to take on those demands and you're a little more resilient to the forces that you're facing and therefore you should be more robust to any uh, adverse situation physically that you might be in mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and a little more resilient to injury. So the preseason and, and preparing yourself leading up to preseason and 
the season is of high importance. So please take yeah. that seriously, just as you would take everything that Claire said seriously, because it can affect your performance. Yeah. I mean, legit. Yeah. And off season is a good time nutritionally for, for athletes to focus on putting an emphasis on that because sometimes, you know, during season there's school and there's this and that. And if they're multi-sport athletes, there's two practices and sometimes nutrition falls to the wayside, which we don't want to happen, but sometimes we really need that off season time to like get in a routine and really right. focus on it and say, okay, this is what works for me. This is how I can get all of these calories in, in a day. Um, and we need to really establish that to then carry that into you know, our other competitive seasons and right. training seasons. Yeah, really so. establish your habits there so you can uh, set yourself up for success later on when things get a little more competitive and important. Yeah. Um, last thing we're going to close with here, we just want to touch on our services a little bit. I know we've been talking about training considerations for specific sports um, in the last couple podcasts, and we will continue to do that uh, next podcast talking about power sports. But um, we've given a lot of general uh, guidance and considerations here, but Aside from this podcast and this general guidance that we give here, we also do individual one-to-one -one coaching uh, mm -hmm. with athletes. So uh, whether you're involved with a club that has um, College Fit Finder, an Aces Nation product, or you're not involved with Aces Nation at all and you're listening to this podcast, um, you're able, your athlete is able to work with us one-to-one -to, -one mm -hmm. to get a specific nutrition plan um, that would talk about fueling for breakfast, talk about you know, how to fit in the right amount of nutrition in your busy schedule as you're traveling from school to maybe your club team's practice or you're coming home from that practice and you need mm -hmm. to fit in um, some more calories or some more protein or, or something to fit in these recommendations that Claire's giving based on the sport that you play so your energy um, needs are met um, right. through your diet. So, um, and then also I provide anything that's specific to um, strength conditioning that might help for your sport that may apply to that rate of force development that I was talking about or anything that would be a conditioning benefit for you um, to fit the energy system of the sport that you play. So we also do that one-to-one -one coaching. Claire, do you want to say anything about our one-to-one -one there? Yeah, I just think it's a, a really unique opportunity for, for younger athletes. Mm -hmm. um, most of the time they don't get this opportunity because we're working together. So we're coordinating right you know, a structured plan and, and programming together. So they complement each other based on the sport, based on the season, based on just each person's individual needs. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really important because we could give general guidelines all day long and that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to work for everybody. That's why I say it depends so dang much. Um, but yeah, I think it's a really unique opportunity. So, you know, I would jump on it if I had the opportunity as an athlete. Absolutely. And Claire and I both did not have this type of resource when we were younger. Mm -mm. I mean, I, I had to college. just fight and claw for everything for myself when I was in high school and middle school without a ton of guidance, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, it's a great resource to have at a younger population and really talk about establishing uh, good habits and good behaviors, uh, movement patterns early on and really developing something that will help you be more marketable as a player, right? Mm -hmm. Through improvements in sport and mm -hmm. um, can really carry on to your lifestyle as well to help you have an understanding of what it means to uh, fuel yourself properly, what mm -hmm. it means to take care of your body for your health. So not only from a sport perspective, but also developing those habits for uh, yeah. everyday life and future life yeah. as well. Uh, so we're gonna put a uh, link to a web form in our description. Mm -hmm. So you'll be able to click on it 
wherever you're listening to this podcast um, or if you're watching it on YouTube for our viewers out there who like to watch us interact in person, see how we move around. Um, and you can also reach out to us via our email. Mine is zwallace at acesnation.org. And mine's C-I-G-O-E at acesnation.org. Yep. So just uh, our first letter and then our, our last name mm-hmm. at that. So uh, we will catch you on the next one. See you next time.